0: You are listening to the PFG Vibecast. I am your co-host Julie Voigt and with me as always is Mr. Russell Baxter. Russell, take it away.
1: Now I think I've said before doing this show, um, the opportunity to work with the people that I've had for more than 30 years um, in, the, in the media business and the NFL media business in television and radio and all the different things that I've done. Um, there's a lot of people that you get to know um, who are very visible to the public. And there are some people who aren't as visible to the public. Um, and there's a gentleman we have on tonight named Craig Mortali, who I have more respect for than, than maybe he even knows. Um, we've known each other 30 years. Um, he was a producer at ESPN. Uh, for those who think they recognize the name, um, won a few awards, critical acclaim for his work with Muhammad Ali. Um, But first and foremost, he is quite the scholar when it comes to NFL history. And it's something him and I have shared over the years for an awfully long time. And we we brought Craig on here tonight to talk about the Green Bay Packers as we continue our history series um, on PFG5. Sport, how are you doing?
2: Russell, I'm 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 doing very well. That I'm on the phone with you again, and Julie, hello to you too. Um, we we do go way back, and um, I spent about six years covering the NFL for ESPN as a feature producer, and and worked uh, on our first six years of the studio product starting in 1987, which is where Russell and I met, and we've formed a, a lifelong friendship and bond through that and shared our passion with the NFL, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on.
0: So, Craig, now, just a couple weeks ago, I was out in Wisconsin, and I just thought it was, like, the most beautiful place to be at, the community, the, the people, everyone. They were just so friendly. So my question to you, just to start off easy, what is it like to be in Green Bay, and what is it like to be at Lombo Field, and, and just the atmosphere of the fans? How, what, explain that.
2: Well, I could I could one-up you because I was there last week. Um, in Wisconsin, I was not in Green Bay last week, but I, I spent a week with uh, my in-laws in Wisconsin. And um, Gr- Green Bay, Wisconsin is like no other professional sports city in America, not only because it's the smallest, but it's the most passionate fan base because I believe the citizens feel the team is their own, even though – They do sell stock, and and my wife is a stockholder in the Green Bay Packers. It it, it is pointless because there is no value in it other than your personal pride in being a part of the organization. And I think everybody in that community on game day um, feels that they are a part of the game, part of the team, and you don't get that anywhere else. I'd say, Russell, your Steelers are pretty close but there's nothing like game, game day at Lambeau Fields is more akin to a college game, perhaps even more intense than a big college game. Uh, the only thing it's lacking is the marching band, I suppose. But um, in a nutshell, you know, if you, if you're from Wisconsin, you feel the Packers are part of you. It, it would be very hard not to feel that way unless you were from the southern side of the state, you might be a Bears fan or from the western side bordering the Mississippi River, you might feel you're more of a Vikings fan. But in general, if you're from Wisconsin, you feel the Packers are part of you.
1: The, the, the sense of community, the way the team is set up, Craig, uh, you know, unique situation and so on. Uh, overall, what do you think that's meant to the National Football League, the uh, the uniqueness of the Packers and the fact that they remain the most Franchise in terms of NFL championships, thirteen. No other team can boast. No other team can boast ten. The Bears well, have. I I I
2: I really think it comes down to two men, and, and not to simplify it too much, but the, the practically the founder of the team was Curly Lambeau, Earl Curly Lambeau, uh, who was in the initial class, the initial enshrinement of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1963, which will tell you something about. His status is as, as an NFL legend, he coached the team from 1921 to 19 – wait a minute, Russell. I've got to help, help me with this. His last year was in the 50s, early 50s, I think. Um, but he built the team – nineteen fifty three. 1953. Uh, he built the team into not only a contender but a perennial playoff team and and the first team in league history to 3 peep having won the the NFL championship in 1929, 30, and 31, also won titles in 36, 39, 44. So that tells you a little something about the early success of the franchise, but because um, the growth of the NFL in the 40s and 50s, uh, and then the Packers decline in uh, Lambeau's later years, in in the mid to late 50s, the Packers are pretty terrible. And there was a very good chance that that team may have had to move or be disbanded. And then they had the um, public sale of stock. And then out of desperation, they brought in a uh, offensive coordinator of sizable experience named Vince Lombardi, who folks in Wisconsin may not have been too familiar with Vince Lombardi, but at a time when the franchise was on the verge of collapse, he was brought in in 1959 to resurrect a once proud franchise, and I think to most people, our age certainly, I don't know if the younger generation understands it, but Vince Lombardi, as, as football fans know, the, NFL, the Super Bowl trophy is named after him for a reason. He is a, a He was a legendary coach, and his success in Green Bay stabilized the franchise from then on out. So it's hard to talk about how the Packers survive in a small town without addressing those two people i think Lambeau's initial success with six world championships made the packers a, a legendary franchise right up there with george Halas's green bay uh, uh chicago bears battling every year um and then when they were in dire straits and the, fr- the franchise may have uh, left town uh, vince lombardi came to the rescue and, and as they say the rest is history
1: is Lombardi the most pivotal part of the Green Bay Packers, um, or is there a, a player? I mean, would be, um, well, you know, I, listen, they have a, their share of Hall of Famers. They have their right. share of legendary names. Right. Um, at least, in your opinion, is is does Lombardi epitomize the Packers, or is it a player? Two things saved the
2: Packers in the late fifties, early sixties. First was Vince Lombardi coming in, finally getting a head coaching job after being denied opportunity throughout the years. And it's mentioned in David Maris's wonderful biography of Vince Lombardi that there was bias against him because he was an Italian American and uh, people just weren't sure about him um, that he hadn't gotten opportunities at the college level. And finally, when the Packer job opened up, you know, he, he grabbed it. He, he, there was a chance he might have been the head coach of the New York Giants if he waited another year or two because mm-hmm. Jim Lee Howell was nearing the end of his career, and then Wellington would have had a very interesting decision to make. Do I hire Tom Landry, our defensive coordinator, or do I hire Vince Lombardi, our offensive – well, back then they weren't coordinators. They were just offensive coach or defensive coach. Um, so I think, in part, Lombardi saved the franchise. The other notion was – and this is more of an economic notion – was – Revenue sharing in the NFL. I think Pete Rozelle was a champion of that, certainly when he became the uh, commissioner. And Russell, maybe you could help me on this. I'm not so sure if it was a Burt Bell thing before Rozelle, but through revenue sharing and the big TV contracts that started, I think, pretty much in the 60s with CBS, um, each team got an equal cut, which meant Green Bay, a small town of less than – a 100,000 back then, was going to get the same slice of the pie that the New York Giants were in 8 million uh, population in New York City. So I think those two things in conjunction, so yes, I think Lombardi was a pivotal person, but the economic structure of the league that changed that allowed revenue sharing, that's the other main factor. I think if the Packers were terrible and there was no revenue sharing, they might have either collapsed or collapse their move. If they won without revenue sharing, that still might have been a factor. But once revenue sharing came in, the franchise became solid.
1: I loved that you went back and, and talked about that because, you know, when, when you look at the landscape of the NFL, Craig, and New York, Chicago, um, you know, eventually Los Angeles, the Cleveland Rams. The Rams right. were in Cleveland before they went to Los Angeles. And you think about all these you know, big cities, these metropolises, and we all, you know, so many times we talk about major media markets um, in sports. You know, Philadelphia, Boston, Green Bay. It, it sticks out like a title town. I can't say a sore thumb when you have 13 titles. That's nothing to be sore about. Nope. Okay, but I think that's something. There's something magical, absolutely magical about that. And speaking of magical. Is there a moment with the Packers that you would consider something that you'll never forget, very memorable to you, one of those, you know, landmark type of a play, a game, um, something like that?
2: Yeah, well, it's hard not to talk about the Green Bay Packers and not talk about the Ice Bowl. And as you know, I'm old enough to remember watching it it on television as Mm -hmm. a week. About I think I was about five years old, but I do remember on the old black and white Zenith uh, watching Bart dive in to win that game. Bart Starr, the late Bart Starr. Um, that that's indelible to me. Those black and white images, and, and I rooted for the Packers back then, even though I grew up in you know Connecticut, a New York Giants fan, and loved the New York Giants, but they were pretty horrendous back in the late 60s. So. It was easy to root for Green Bay because you know I'm, I'm Italian American. Lombardi's Italian American. Uh, Lombardi came from New York. There was a lot of reasons why it made sense for Giant fans to root for the Packers on the side, which I did. So I think that moment more than any other. And years later, I learned the history of how the '67 team was on the ropes most of the year. Had a lot of injuries. Lombardi was worn out by the run of being there since 1959. And it was all they could do get over the hump in 67 you know a horning had retired jim taylor was traded um jim ringo had left in the mid-60s but there were a lot of changes to the team from the 61 62 championships to the team in 67 and lombardi through his genius plugged in role players guys like travis williams who came out of nowhere to run return kickoffs he picked up chuck mercine midseason to fill in in, in an off injured backfield um, you know, they, they made moves like that to get them over. Them. Gail Gillingham took over at left guard when Fuzzy Thurston was starting to show some wear and tear in some age. So um, that that moment, I think, more than any in Packer history on the field, that, that would be my number one moment if I had to pick one on the field moment for the Packers. And uh, that moment means enough to me that um, I actually asked my wife to marry me on the one-yard line in the south end zone, left hash mark which is where
1: Bart dove in. Oh. And eventually she got the ice from you
0: too, right?
2: <laughs> well, she got it right there, actually, Russell. Okay. I was right. on my knee with the ice in my hand. But you know what? Until you said that, I never put two and two together. Now, when we're finished here, I'll have to go run and tell Paula that. That's very smart out of you, Russell. Yes, I gave her the ice on the spot from the ice bowl. Absolutely. There you go. Thank you. <laughs>
0: So, of course, Craig, I live up here in, I would say, the Midwest. So, I was born and raised into a family of Bears fans. Um, No, I did not carry over the tradition, unfortunately. But um, the Packers and the Bears rivalry, and we know that's going to be one of the first games of the season. Um, Do you have a favorite Bears versus Packers history moment?
2: Um. (laughs) keep bringing it back to my wife. When I first (laughs) met her, she she worked in the public relations department of the Packers, and I spent two weekends during the 96 Super Bowl season Mm. filming an outside-the-line special for ESPN. And those two weekends, they were were going to be hosting. uh, And the first weekend, late November, was against the Bears. So I actually witnessed the Bears-Packers game in person. And Mm -hmm. being that weekend where I first met my future wife, That will always have a special place in my heart. Um, God, there's so many over the years. I mean, Russell, you can't you can't forget that game where the fridge went in against the Packers. uh, Yeah, on Monday Night Football. That that's 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 stuck in the craw, Packer fans forever. Um, You know, in 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 recent years, I mean, they played. They were in the playoffs not so long ago. the uh, the 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 Packers went into Soldier Field and and beat the, the Bears. So. Um, other than that, there aren't a lot of more recent ones that stick out to me. I think more history ones. I, I, there's one where Horning, uh, I think when he set the record for – when he had 176 points in 1960, I think he, his last points were at Wrigley Field. I remember he threw the ball in the, in, into the uh, bleachers at Wrigley when he scored. That was kind of a memorable moment. Um it seems like when the Packers were successful, the Bears were not. In my lifetime, they had a run in the th- 20s and 30s and 40s where they went back and forth. But I'd say through most of the 60s, 70s, 80s until now, the, they, they were not hot when they, they, they were not hot at the same time. So it didn't make for a lot of memorable matchups, at least to me as as an outsider to the rivalry.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a bizarre one to be honest with you, and and you know, getting the opportunity to co- uh, work with Mike Ditka. Um, at ESPN, um, having a chuckle or two over the Asterisk game. you remember that? The Asterisk game. Don Mikowski throwing the ball over. He was past the line of scrimmage, and he threw a winning touchdown pass. Uh, and,
2: and that was that was during my time covering the NFL. So that was, what, 89? 89, 89? I
1: believe. And Mike Ditka, because they lost the game, yep. <laughs> Coach Ditka made the Bears public relations department but an asterisk.
2: Yes. Next I do to the remember that now four, mention it. Yet.
1: And it was there um, for years and years. The last time I looked it was taken out, but I can verify that it was actually put in there.
2: Wasn't that great catch that Antonio Freeman had on Monday Night against the Bears?
1: No, that was against the Vikings.
2: But wasn't there I you know, maybe in 96 I'm thinking he made a spectacular catch at Soldier Field. May not have been the one the, the Monday Night one, but he right. made a ridiculous catch in 96 to win a Packer game at, at Soldier Field, I believe. But, I like yeah, it, it just seems that when they're not hot together, the games right. are less memorable. Right. But, you know what, come to think of it, Lombardi's first win as head coach was at then City Stadium, which became Lambeau Field, against the Bears, and they carried him off. I believe it was a 7 to nothing win for Green Bay.
1: Well, it's, it's funny you said it because I was doing some uh, – I'm working on a different piece for scheduling. Um, uh, scheduling important games and stuff like that. So I was really digging back into the recent history of the rivalry. And you're, and you're so spot on because, first off, for all the times they have met, I think they've met in the playoffs twice, twice over all that history. And talk about lops, lopsided from 85 to 91. Okay. The Bears 12 of the 14 meetings, Greg. Since then, which what dates to the arrival of Brett Favre in '92, and Rodgers, are you ready for this? Go the for it. Packers are forty and fifteen against yeah. the Bears since That's 1990. Right. Forty That's and not fifteen.
2: No, nope. I mean the Bears, let's face it: in the last fifteen or twenty years, the Bears had really two seasons that you'd go, "Oh, all right," and they're right. they're on the come now, you right. know. The, during the Lovey Smith era, they had the one year where they lost to the Colts in the Super Bowl.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: maybe at that run where they played Green Bay and lost in the championship. Other than that, they really have not been out at
1: the same time. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's funny. It, it, it's just one of those uh, – it, and it's so, it, it's so different because you talk about different rivalries in NFL history. Some of them are born out of tradition. Some of them, you know, like Dallas and San Francisco – uh, are born out of the postseason. Right. But this is
2: a border like, war, though, because yes. Illinois bordering Wisconsin, you have that, and they were two of the oldest franchises in the league. And again, in those early years, you had Curly Lambeau and George mm-hmm. Hallis. And you know that brings me back. To, let me say something else about Curly Lambeau. I think he's totally underrated and overlooked as a great NFL coach because he's he's fifth on the all-time wins list still. Don Shulett... George Hallis, Bill Belichick, Tom Landry, Curly Lambeau. He had 226 career wins, a winning percentage of 631 in 33 seasons. And it's remarkable. And he won six world championships. And how that doesn't stick with anybody, I, I don't quite understand. Because, and again, it's, it's you know, the, the, through the shadows of time, people, people just forget it's not current anymore. But people recognize George Hallis if you're the slightest of an NFL fan. And mm-hmm. obviously people recognize Vince Lombardi but I think Lambeau's successes have gone largely uh, forgotten and if you've spent any time with Lee Remmel the late Lee Remmel who was the public relations director of the right. Packers and right. sports writer, as I know you did he would be the first one to bring that up he would tell you about Lambeau and I think a lot of people in Wisconsin had a bias against Lombardi meaning the media because Vince was seen as a New York guy and they were a little more provincial in Wisconsin, where Lambeau was one of them, so there was always a rub there uh, in the media between Lombardi and the local media. But uh, those were the guys that would always trumpet. You know, Lambeau was pretty good too. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, hey, stadium's named after him. He must
1: have been pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you got one guy who's got a stadium named after him, and another guy who has the league championship trophy named after him.
2: Right. And, <laughs> and another thing people don't realize with Lambeau. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Russell. I believe he played at Notre Dame and he learned the passing game from Rockne in the 20s. So, or in the teens, rather. So, when he came into the NFL as a player, he already understood the early passing game, which is why he had great success with Arnie Herber and Don Hudson in the mm-hmm. 30s and early 40s.
1: Yeah, Don Hudson. <laughs> Boy, you could do four hours on Don Hudson.
2: Well, this will all come to a head at the end with Don Hudson, who, I must say, Chris Berman and I had the great honor of spending an afternoon with Don Hudson back in 1988. We flew up to Palm Springs to profile him for NFL game day, as it was known then. Um, and what a gentleman and the stories he had to tell and just how much more simple the NFL was back then. Uh, but it, 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 we'll get into this later when we start talking about the great Packer players. But uh, he was a phenomenal talent, and another player who I believe is largely forgotten.
1: Well, but uh, not
2: tonight. Not tonight.
1: <laughs> no, not tonight. No, and Don Hudson. I mean, talk about we, we talk about Jerry Rice, and rightfully so. Um, the touchdown productions in an era where there really wasn't passing yet—it's—it's it's mind-boggling. It's—it's—it's it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. You talk. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up here. Talk about your encounter with Don Hudson and stuff. Could you, by the way, let's see if we can arrange a dinner. Me, you, Julie, Chris Berman, Don Hudson, and just for fun, let's get Sammy Ball involved. What do you think?
2: If you could bring Sammy and, and, and Don Hudson back, that would be an achievement, because they are also dead. But, um...
1: Yeah, but don't don't underestimate the power of PV, PFG vibe. I'm just letting you know, okay? <laughs> Listen, the man truly changed
2: the position of wide receiver and the passing game in general, as you mentioned, at a time where it was still a passing league. He was MVP in 1941 and 42. The Packers won three NFL titles while he was there in 36, 39, and 44. At the time of his retirement, he held 18 NFL records. His 99 career touchdowns was broken by Steve Largent in 1989. Um... Yes. He, and here's what we'll tell you, just about everything you know about Don Hudson and his effect on the Packers. His 99 touchdowns are still the Packer record for receiving touchdowns, which is 30 more than second-place Jordy Nelson. <laughs> so it's, yeah. if, you're,
1: if you have 99 good, touchdowns
2: yeah. and you played in the 30s and the 40s catching a football, you must have been an extraordinarily talented player, and Don Hudson
1: was. Well, talk about extraordinarily talented. And, you know, I love waxing poetically about your sport. Um, this was We're not, fin- We're
2: not finished, Just, are we? No, no, no. We, we keep going here.
1: Well, you, got, you have somebody, is somebody else you want to talk about? Go ahead.
2: Well, th- well, one other note about Hudson, and I do have someone else I want to talk about. Hudson also had 30 career interceptions because he was a two-way player. There okay, you know. He, he kicked. He had seven career field goals. Uh, to go along with playing in the secondary for the Packers. His Pro Bowl, he was an all pro 11 times, named the four Pro Bowls. Now, people, I'm a golf fan, and people always, you know, people, I think, generally recognize Jack Nichols as the greatest golfer of all time based on, on, on his credentials. There's very little question about that. But if you were to ask people who's the most beloved golfer of all time, I think hands down, you're going to get the answer being, say anyone of our generation will say Arnold Palmer because he built the PGA as we know it today. And in era when television came into vogue, he was a very emotional, you saw it on TV. People in the sixties just fell in love with the man. Now how does this relate to the green Bay pack? Well, their quarterback in the sixties was the uh, recently passed Bart Starr. If you were to ask me, Who's the most beloved Packer of all time? I, I'd say hands down Bart Starr. I had the good honor, the honor of meeting him on a couple of occasions. He was a favorite of Paula's when she was working there. Always a gentleman, always a stand-up guy. The, the, the fans in Wisconsin, when he passed, you know, there, was, there was reverence. In fact, my father-in-law, Paula had a football signed to him. By Bart Starr, and Bart had a thing with signing. He would never just put his name on a ball. He would ask you your name, and he would personalize it because he didn't want the balls being sold on the internet or at auction. Because if you just put a name on it, his name, it's worth more. So if your name's on it, then it's less likely you'll sell it or give it to somebody else. When Bart died, my father-in-law thought to himself, "You know what? We've got the, the football signed by Bart Starr in the spare room. We have got to put that out in a prominent place in the house now." And when he got home, my mother-in-law had already done it. He, he hadn't even called her to tell her. When he came home, Bart Starr's football was over the television, over wow. the entertainment center in their living room. That's the kind of effect he had on the people of Wisconsin because, again, he was at the forefront of the Lombardi era. He was the beloved player. He was the face of the franchise, and that is never going to go away. I, in my mind, Don Hudson's the greatest Packer of all time on the field. But Bart Starr is the most beloved player in Packer history.
1: That reverence that you saw when the three of them were together, the three quarterbacks, Favre and Rodgers, and Bart Starr being able to be out in the field a couple of years ago. and, and Great moment. The, obviously, the, the stuff that you know, Bart Starr had to say uh, about Aaron Rodgers. I saw some quotes a couple of months ago and so on, and how much, uh, how much Bart Starr meant to Aaron Rodgers. Right, As well. Um, it's, it's quite, <laughs> you think about, and listen, there's a lot of franchises that have iconic players and iconic quarterbacks, but you think about that legacy um, of, of Bart Starr with all those championships and Favre with all that resiliency and who knows how Aaron Rodgers is actually going to, how he's going to finish, although his, his numbers are simply mind boggling um, it's quite a tradition. It's it, it it lends to the aura of Green Bay Packers, Craig.
2: It it does. And you know, you mentioned Far Rogers and it, it you know, his his numbers may be mind boggling, but when you think about it, Brett is so far ahead. He's so yes. far ahead of Aaron Rodgers right now. I don't know if Aaron Rodgers can ever catch him in, in his packing, pa- passing records.
1: Well um, I think the thing when I when I say the the numbers with Aaron Rodgers, it's kinda in a different sense. You consider the fact that he came into the league in 2005. He didn't start his first game until 2008. That's right. So he's been a starter now 11 years, give or take the last couple years, um, you know, with injuries and stuff like that. He still hasn't thrown 100 interceptions. Okay? Right. Yet, he is well over 300 touchdown passes. You know, it's a different sense of breadth. And I don't know if anybody – you know, I mean, obviously, um, Peyton Manning's a fast spread as far as the all-time list and so on and the you know, consecutive games record. With Rodgers, it's just – you know, he had a bad year last year and he had 25 touchdowns and two picks. Right, if right. We, it's a different kind of thing. For
2: think Favre, Russell, with Favre's longevity. I right. mean, he played so long. And the, and the streak, of course, is – you know, no one's ever going to touch that streak of uh, games played. But, I mean, I, I was looking at the numbers yesterday, actually. You know, I'm looking right now at the Packers pa- uh, passing records. I mean, Brett's got 61,000 yards right. passing. I mean, how many more seasons does Rogers have to play? I mean, it, it's it, nah. it's a thing that, that Far put up those kind of touchdowns, 442 to 338. I mean,
1: that's, he's pretty far behind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 just the styles in them too, as well. I mean, you think a star, methodical, efficient, um, a field general as much as anything else. Far, um, the you know the blood and Plinger. gut, the gunslinger, yeah. um, not afraid to gamble. And Aaron Rodgers, you know, just for my money, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who throws a football like he does. It's oh look. Let's, let's face it, in
2: 2019, I don't think there's much argument that two best quarterbacks in the NFL are Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Right. Um, and on a given day, one could be better than the other. Obviously, Brady's got the rings, but from pure technical ability to throw the ball and run an offense, you know, Aaron Rodgers is pretty damn good. I mean, that's a hard argument. I mean, I, I suppose you have to give Brady the nod, but Aaron mm-hmm. Rodgers is right there. He's right there with him. But I'm going to go back to something you just said. You threw Bart Starr in the equation. All right. All right. Let's think. That. Brett Favre's got all the numbers. Aaron Rodgers is creeping up on him, but between them, they have a ring apiece. Bart Correct. Starr had five rings in seven years. Now, granted, it was it was a largely running league, and the Packers had to sweep with Horning and Taylor, and later with Elijah Pitts, and you know they, they were a different style team. But Bart Starr's numbers for that era are very, very
1: good. Yes. Yes. They, they, they certainly are. That's exactly correct. And I think sometimes with Bart Starr, the more the focus becomes on the championships than sometimes his actual play, his actual right. performance. You know, I mean, he was MVP of the first two Super Bowls for a reason, you know, right. not just because he was handing off the ball. Okay. So, I guess was- the question I'm
2: asking you now, if I could quickly turn the tables, all right, who is the greatest Packer quarterback of all time? Because I'm not asking greatest quarterback of all time. To me, that's a different discussion. Bart Starr is the most important quarterback that ever played for the Green Bay Packers. I'm sorry. He is. Now, his numbers don't equate with the other two, but from leadership and getting an entire state behind him. I mean, Brett Farber's pretty close. I People in Green Bay, until he left town to play for, the, less so for the Jets, but when he played for Minnesota, that weren't oh. a lot of people in Green Bay, and I think that that's kind of simmered down. Those embers have cooled. With Favre, but he was a pretty beloved figure before that. But I think you can
1: make an argument. Parks Starr might be the most, the best quarterback in Packer history. Well, he would get he would get my vote because when I look at it, I look at it as a combination of things. Okay, the success, uh, the balance. You know, it, it's not like and and you know we're not talking about the Miami Dolphins of the early '70s. You know, in the Super Bowls against Washington and Minnesota. Okay. But, in which Bob Greasy barely threw the football. Okay. Right. Um, and that's not a knock on Bob Greasy. That's they were successful that way. They went to the three straight Super Bowls. They obviously had the right formula. But what Bart Starr, I mean, and, and not even so much the champion, you know, they they went a shootout at the Cotton Bowl against right. Down. Okay, a 34-27 game. Okay. Um you know, they, the the guiding of the team down the field in the closing minutes, when we, when you talk about the ice ball, more of the focus obviously goes on the one-yard plunge. There was a lot that happened before then of him leading right. that team down the field. So right.
2: And a lot, you know what? He was throwing little dump-offs to Chuck Mursine and Donnie Anderson yep. and methodically moving the ball and working the clock. I mean, you know, in his era – it was really, Unitas was the guy you thought of as, you know, the two-minute quarterback, you know, the field general at the end of the quarter, at the end of the half or at the end of the game. But Bart Starr was able to do that too.
1: Well, you know, one of the things the Boomer and I used to talk about is, you know, the ability to win the 13-10 game and also the 34-27 game. Right. Okay. That, to me, is always very, very fascinating. And that's, I think, what we saw with Bart Starr.
2: And, you know, and let's, let, let's also add this to the credibility for Bart Starr. He called his own plays. Yes. In that era, the quarterback called the plays. And, and I've heard Packers, the Packers of his era, have told me that on game day, Lombardi was about as useless as, as can be because his job was to prepare them for Sunday nobody prepared a team better than than Vince Lombardi in that era. You could say that about Belichick now. But that team was ready to roll on Sunday. And once the plan was in place, he basically put them out there. I mean, he was not making a lot of in-game changes, and Bart was calling the plays. So, um, you know, he did a lot of yelling and screaming and what the hell is going on out there and all that. But essentially, you know, they were were just ready to roll like a well-oiled machine. They knew what to do. All they had to do – the brilliance of Lombardi was he brought them to the point where all they had to do is execute and that's on the players and you have to prepare them for that in any sport, but particularly football, because, you know, there's, there's 11 people moving at once and they all, if one guy fails, the play fails in most cases. So, um, that was his brilliance and motivation. I'd say preparation and motivation is what
1: made Lombardi great. Great stuff, Craig. We really appreciate you coming on and we look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks when you get to talk New York Giants uh, in our continuing history series on PFG Vibe. Um, And uh, later this week, we're not only going to have a little more on the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Julie, um, but as the great Billy Joel once sang, it's just a fantasy. It's not the real thing. So we'll let people think about that. Hopefully you enjoyed our latest show, our 26th episode at the PFG Vibecast. So for Julie Noted underscore PFG for PFG Vibe and for Bax Football Guru, hopefully you're following all of us on Twitter. If not, um, we will find you and uh, hopefully you enjoy what we do. Um, but again, thanks very much for listening and uh, have a great evening.